are listening to Adjective New Music's podcast, Lexical Tones. I'm your host, Rob McClure. Folkloric, lively, saludinous. Melody Ertversch is a Bloomington, Indiana-based Australian composer whose work draws on both multimedia and traditional instrumental contexts, as well as substantial extra-musical references to a broad range of philosophical topics and late 19th century literature. Melody has been the recipient of various awards, including the APRA PDA from Australia, the Soundstream National Composer Award, and a Virginia B. Toolman Foundation Orchestral Commission administered by the League of American Orchestras, the Earshot Foundation. Current commissions include an orchestral work for the Tasmanian Symphony Orchestra, Synergy Percussion Plus Vox, the Cho's Composition Commission Award, and a piano and clarinet work for Guy Yehuda. Melody holds a Doctor of Music from Indiana University Jacobs School of Music and a Master of Music from the Royal Academy of Music in London. Let's start with uh, uh, just talking about your piece, Wild October Jones. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, before we start talking about the piece, uh, we should mention that you uh, were chosen as the 2016 uh, Cho's Annual Composition Commission Award, which is offered by the school that I teach at, mm-hmm. um, and uh, which is Su- Sujo University. Uh, there were about... 350 applicants for that award and uh (laughs) we the we chose we chose you uh based on the pieces that uh that you submitted and uh we chose because of this piece that we're going to listen to Mm -hmm. wild october jones and i think we were all drawn to this piece uh, me and um the other members of the committee other performance faculty members were all drawn to your melodic and gestural writing because i guess it it seems so natural and and fluid mm-hmm. and so when you compose these gestures how how do you achieve that fluidity i'd have to say i mean it's something i've always loved writing not a good melody but a melody that kind of connects continuously throughout whatever it is the pieces um and I think it's it's come down to more of a instinctive um thing that I do it's I can't really (laughs) I've tried analyzing I've been told that I should try and analyze it um but honestly I think if I did that it would destroy that the flow that it has Mm -hmm. um so it it just kind of stems from keeping in mind whatever motivic nucleus is in it, because there's usually connecting factors between, you know, different versions of the melody, um, mm-hmm. kind of in a Wagnerian endless melody kind of way, where it's the uh, continuous variation happening on something. Um, mm-hmm. But otherwise, I mean, I can't... <laughs> I'd, <laughs> I'd, I'd love to give you a formula, but um, it's... I, I don't think it's possible at this point. Maybe one day. Yeah. Yeah, but at the moment it's it's instinctive, I think. Right. Are you are you thinking? Are you coming at these these gestures and these melodies from a purely uh, musical standpoint, or is there like a visual impetus or a movement impetus? Like how how are you? I guess how how does your brain work? I guess that's the question. <laughs> <laughs> um, if I had to, I, I guess I am a very visual person as well because I love mm-hmm. photography. I make a lot of videos um, and uh, observing, you know, changes in light and all that, all that kind of stuff. Um, so, I mean, and the piece is inspired by a picture. 
So it's there is a lot of connection, I think, to the way that this um, the particular picture that I was inspired by the painting, sorry, um, right. the way that the shapes move in that image as well. So I think that and the colors as well. It's uh, a remarkably colorful image. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Surprisingly so, especially the first time I saw it, it was it was this big. It was like on a playing <laughs> card. Um, right. And of course, it's a much larger painting in real life. But yeah, connecting it to something visual like that definitely makes sense. Is the is the painting itself called Wild October Jones? No, no, that's uh, no. Okay. I, I invented that title because I needed. Okay. I'm fussy about titles. So <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a good title. Thank you. <laughs> um, you found that painting on a playing card, and then. I guess why why were you so inspired by it? The randomness, where I found it, when I found it, and I guess the mood that I was in when I found it. Um, it was a a summer. I'd come back. Um, it was and it was winter in Australia, and I was just rummaging through. I was at a record fair, and I wasn't into buying records at the time, so I was going through all this uh, the comics. And then there was this area with um, you know, hundreds of playing cards, all in these beautiful little folders. So I'm going through those and I'm like, oh, this is kind of cool. But there's, there's no sets. They're just individual playing cards. But oh. it's because of the the image that's on the back of the playing card. Um, that's why they're so special. So I'm flipping through these things and then I see this. It just stands out to me. And so I'm like, I need to get that. It was $3. Um, and I bought it and I kept it with the rest of the stuff that I collected that summer, like postcards and stuff. Um, and then, you know, a couple of years later, I find the card again buried in my memorabilia somewhere and Mm -hmm. look at the, uh, the title of the painting and also who the, the painter was. And it's an Indiana painter and we've got a bunch of his paintings here at the university. Uh So it was, it connected and then I wrote the piece. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is that kind of part of part of your, um, I guess, personality? Like, are you kind of a collector? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> it depends on um, post. Usually, postcards, rocks. Like, if I go to um, like Aspen a couple of summers ago, I have this jar on my bookshelf full, of, like, of just rocks that I picked up mm-hmm. wherever I went, um, especially on the mountains. Um, rocks, postcards, and yeah, anything, plane tickets, it's terrible, <laughs> but for some reason, <laughs> um, yeah. So, but specific things, I'm not a hoarder or anything. Right. <laughs> okay. That's good. Um, but, but I mean, there is something to that about, um, the, you know, the, I guess the importance or maybe not importance, but the, the lure of the physical object, there's something about that, especially living in, in a world where nearly everything is being digitalized, Mm -hmm. you know, and that, that physical thing that, that, I mean, that's, that's it. The thing, Yeah. you know, I love the thing. That's, I think that's why, you know, I don't, I, I always want the physical book. You know? absolutely oh my gosh yeah yeah like i never i never really want to read anything online if i can help it the physical book is an important because of its its status as a thing you know mm-hmm. that you can hold and it belongs on a shelf and you can look at it and you can take it out and you know there's there's just something about that that is nice in at this point in history where where so many things are um 
we're we're just left with like the essence of it but not the actual thing you know yeah we're losing touch with that i don't know beautiful part of reality that involves connecting with things yeah yeah and by yeah no you're right that's a really good point i like it (laughs) (laughs) good Uh, um so so on this uh this piece is for flute piano cello and percussion Mm -hmm. um was that a uh why that specific instrumentation um, because they're all things that I love, um, in particular the alto flute. There's no, um, the, the flautist doesn't change back to a C flute mm. or a piccolo or anything. The whole thing is just alto flute. Um, and just, you know, the extra depth that those four notes give you, well, there's how many, I guess six notes, um, is just, is gorgeous. And, you know, it takes more breath as well. So that you have to take that into consideration when, you know, writing those long melodies. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, the, alto tam- flute- the timbre really changes too. Yeah, you yeah. know, I mean, a a middle C on alto is different than a middle C on C flute. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Um. And yeah, cello. Um. I used to be a cellist, so I'm, I'm always going to be connected mm. to that instrument. Piano, definitely. <laughs> um. As you can see, one in the background. Um. Right. And so you're a pianist. Are you a pianist too? Primarily, yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, and yeah, percussion, um, or for the sustaining beauty that it just gives everything. Definitely. <laughs> I used to be a percussionist. So. Oh, nice. <laughs> you know what I'm talking um, about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I do. I do. Um, yeah, it's, it's so, it's so strange. I've talked to so many, so many composers who used to be cellists mm. recently. Yeah. yeah. And it's always used to be, it's never. Oh, it's, it's always used to be. Oh, <laughs> Well, do you still consider yourself a cellist? No, I don't. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have an instrument. You know, I haven't played yeah. I haven't played since, you know, I borrowed one. I think the first year of my doctorate from the university and then I took it back and yeah, I haven't played since then. So, yeah. definitely was a cellist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, who who are the performers we're going to hear on the recording? Um, this recording I believe is from Aspen the one that I sent you, um, mm-hmm. and that would be uh, William Chidano on alto flute, uh, Wong Lam on piano, Julia Ross on percussion, and Evan Khan on cello. Thank you. 
am am I remembering this right? Did we actually meet at one point? Oh yeah, in real life, we did. We did. We did. I can't okay. remember if it was when um, some IU people visited UNT or whether it was at Seamus. I think it might have been Seamus. I think it was at Seamus because I w- yep, yep yep I was hanging around <laughs> with. Uh, with Dan Tramty and, and uh, Mark. Mark. Yep. Mark. Yeah. <laughs> Mark. <laughs> this is his birthday today. Um, it is? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, it is his birthday. Tomorrow. Happy birthday, Mark. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, this isn't going to be coming out for a couple, like a couple months. So <laughs> happy belated, Mark. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But we've, we've definitely met. Okay, good. Yeah. yeah. I was trying to, I was trying to remember because I felt like, I felt like, yeah, it was. I'm I'm glad you remember too because mm. I really felt like it was a Seamus. Let's talk about House of Beehives. Ooh, okay. Um, just looking through your your other works that you have um, listed on your website or on SoundCloud, or mm-hmm. um, it looks like insects play a role <laughs> as inspirations. I mean, you have this piece about bees, or at least beehives. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a piece about beetles and dragonflies that's true another piece about dragonflies yeah so is that a thing or is that just a coincidence no i think it, it it's got to be more than a coincidence because there's also the leaf cutter ant which is the leaf cutter okay for... that i i saw that too and i was wondering if that was it yeah yeah now that's and I, i'm not a huge fan of insects i mean they're kind of creepy <laughs> <laughs> but no when you read on them like scientifically and um or bi- biologically they're amazing like what they yeah. can do those dragonflies, like for the string quartet, um, they basically travel around the entire world. It's mm-hmm. unbelievable. Such a small, fragile thing can do that. Um, but then actually House of the Beehives is more about a story. And it does involve okay. a beekeeper. Um, but I've I've had it confused. And actually the first review that was ever written on the piece was mistakenly um reviewed as being an environmental piece because you know the plight of the bee and how they're all dying out uh-huh. like no <laughs> do your research <laughs> come on it's, it's based on a calvino story it's uh-huh. quite different but it's still associated with bees right yeah i guess <laughs> it's it's just interesting to me because i um there are several pieces that i've written that are about insects mm-hmm. as well and on um when we did uh the the podcast that um like where i was the feature composer and jamie lee sampson was interviewing me her first question to me was why bugs <laughs> <laughs> and i had the exact same answer as you like i don't really like them you know but they're incredibly interesting and i yeah. find like i'm i'm so they I'm so into like learning about them, just not being around them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's quite different. Two two very different ways. Yeah. To so in house, <laughs> so in house of the beehives, you said it's about a story about mm-hmm. a beekeeper. So what can you can you kind of describe that story a little bit? It's a little bit. Um, um, it's not a nice story. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's okay. Okay. Basically, it's about a, a hermit who lives by himself. He doesn't like people, but he lives in a little cottage, has his bees, he has a goat, um, and the village uh, is nearby, uh, but not too close. Anyway, one day um, he is going about his business and a young woman wanders into his area. <laughs> and, um, the, I mean, the whole story is told in from the perspective that all of this has happened in the past and he's reflecting on mm-hmm. everything. 
So he basically says, without saying it directly, that he raped and killed her. Okay, wow. Yeah. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, but the, the reason why I like this story, it, obviously the subject matter is, you know, kind of gruesome and scary. Um, mm-hmm. But the way that it's told by, he doesn't ever directly say what he did. And it's just mm-hmm. this strong implication um, and it's really dark. But um, at the end, it's also self-realization. Like he's never going to change. Like this is just who he is. And he's acknowledged that and he's one of the very few people in the world that probably has done that because <laughs> mm-hmm. everyone else is, you know, living, going through the motions, et cetera. Um, but so he just ends up being an incredibly honest person, you know, even if he's a monster. Um, wow. Yeah, so it's it's a crazy story. I'd, I'd recommend reading it if you're not yeah. too put off by things that who's might happen the, in it. Who's the author? Italo Calvino. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, the way you're describing it, it just, the, the kind of vision I'm getting mm-hmm. just from hearing you describe it is like kind of like a Lars von Trier film or something like that. Like really quite dark, but at the same time very you know, uh, genuine, mm-hmm. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. yeah spot on. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I might, yeah, I'll have to check that out. That's, that sounds, uh, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's a great, um, great author. Um, yeah. He's written a bunch of stuff. Uh, his cosmic comics are another one of my favorite, uh, mm. set of book, uh, set of stories as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so is that, I mean, that story is, it's the inspiration or is it the driving force behind this piece? Does it, does it, um, build itself into the music in a, in a structural or formal way? Yes, absolutely. It's yeah. both, um, very much so the, cause there's five movements, even though they're all connected, it's a tucker, uh, the whole mm-hmm. way through, um, it's kind of has a symmetrical formation around that central third movement where uh, the supposed rape happens so it just gets really intense and it's a flute solo and you can kind of you can hear it happening (laughs) at least that's my intention um and yeah but strangely it's something that unless you've read the book or know the the reason behind the music the inspiration straight over people's heads they have no idea that that's what's just happened so Mm. it's yeah it's, it's interesting in that way as well yeah. I wonder about that because you know, they're 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 like two two different types of composers out there. Ones that want you to know the story and want to tell you the story mm-hmm. like in program notes and and other people that are just like, "No, just listen to it." Yeah. You should you should just get it. But I mean, with something like that, you know, that's so was so specific, it's you don't you don't want to be overt, you know, you don't yeah. want to hear the sounds of rape. Well, yeah, that's, I <laughs> that's mean, not good. That's why it's so tricky. And that's why in the program notes, I haven't said that. I haven't indicated yeah. that's what's happening. It says in the, oh. the movement title is very specific. Um, and I think that the subtitle of the movement is to see the, oh, to see the horror and shame in her eyes. That's the subtitle. Oh. So, I mean, but that could, that could mean anything. I mean, and it could mean something specific, but you know, someone who's just listening to this, they, if they haven't connected the dots, then they're not going to hear it. And I, Mm. I'm fine with that as well, because it, it is kind of a very 
distracting and terrible thing to think about. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, so this, this piece is for flute and oboe and electronics. Are the electronics mm-hmm. live? Um, no, not in this. It's um, all, it's all fixed. Okay. It's all fixed. Yes. The premiere was in Australia with, um, mm. a pr- Inventi Ensemble. Um, and they're the ones in the recording. Um, I didn't have access to them to get the samples. So again, when I was in Aspen, I, I cornered a flautist and an oboist and recorded, um, them sight reading through the material. And mm. I used that, um, and using digital performer, I generated, um, you know, I, t- I put filters and all that kind of stuff, delays mm-hmm. on the sounds. Um, sometimes you can definitely tell it's a flute and an oboe. Other times it, it gets a little bit twisted in the sound. So it's more or less the electronics serving as the bridge between um, the acoustic instrument and the more clearly uh, electronic parts, like super Uh synthetic electronic sounds. Right. Um, And there's also a lot of prepared piano recorded in there as well. Yeah. Yeah. I heard that almost uh, at at the, at the beginning, I was almost convinced it was, there was a piano a live yeah. piano in it because they're so very, very, very clear recordings. Excellent. Um, oh, good. I did my job properly then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, what are the, so we, we heard the, the title of the third movement. What are the other titles? There are five movements, right? Yes. The first movement is uh, Hermit um, in parenthesis Chorale. Second movement is Bees in parenthesis Toccata. Third movement, sorry, is Into the Woods, which is also called, uh, in parenthesis, The Wall. So I had my information wrong. Then four is The Encounter, um, mm. to see the terror and shame in her eyes. And then five is, again, The Hermit, like a sinking memory go around. Um, so it's kind of, it's framed by The Hermit um, and with the bees and The Encounter, which you can kind of build a, a bridge between um, in terms of, what each of them do, <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. what each of those movements, what the goal is. Um, right. Yeah.
So uh, King in Yellow, 
This is for a Perot ensemble plus percussion. Mm-hmm. And this piece has, I thought, little touches of music from the past. Nothing nothing obvious, but it almost had an like an aroma or an essence that the listener would get every once in a while and then it would recede. I mean, is that a fair assessment? I would say yes. Um, yeah. If you're gonna ask me how I did that again, <laughs> I, I'm not. Okay, good. <laughs> but but how does how does the past influence your present as a composer? A lot. I think um, I'm always I'm one of those people. I think that was you know I belong to another time. Um, mm. Was born too late or something. Right. Um, but yeah. What per- is what is that time that you that you think know. you belong to? <laughs> Any time but now. <laughs> um well i've been obsessed well not obsessed that's an unhealthy word um with uh late 19th century literature and Mm -hmm. events um for a while and king and yellow belongs to that um that time so yeah i don't know it's I don't know if it's not like i would want to live then it's just the way that they were thinking and the kind of literature that they were writing it's just different, and because I read so much of it and I absorb a lot of it, I think it's there's no way I can avoid it getting into my music. You kind of have a romanticized like idea of that that time. I think so. I think so. <laughs> yeah, I have I have the same th- exact thing with like uh, New York in the fifties. Oh, there I you would go. love I would love to go back to that mm-hmm. and just just be there for a while, but not not live there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just visit. <laughs> yeah, just just visit. <clears throat> um, so the third movement, uh, it has a very sensuous feel to it, mm-hmm. and I think, and I, I I'm just interpreting it as I I felt this way because I think you were very careful with your consideration of register. I mean, the two opening movements kind of leave the the lower the lower middle register that it leaves a gap in that register. And the third is the, where that entire movement kind of sits. Mm-hmm. So was this, I mean, what is the, what's the overall design of the piece? Of just the third movement or of it as a collective? The, yeah. The, the collective. Um, overall it's actually, there's um, another movement which hasn't been uh, transformed into the Piero Ensemble. Um, so uh-huh. it's not actually complete. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Um, which, you know, in my in my mind, I'm okay with um, because it's one of those pieces that I just keep, maybe we'll continue adding on to. Because um, uh-huh. as you know, there's, there's 10 stories in The King in Yellow, so they can I can keep adding to them. Um, uh-huh. But it's just that sound world. Um, my goal was to perpetuate that throughout all of the movements um and your observation about register is spot on um but again it's self-contained within each of the movements Uh so intention wise i didn't set out with that in mind it just i started you know each of the movements is its own thing because it belongs to a Uh different story in the book right um yeah so i don't know if i've answered your question Really, I well, I think so because if you were like, if you're responding to the the structure of the stories, then it, there's 
that's that's built in yeah. somehow, you know. Okay. So, I mean, I think it's, it was like, it, the third movement just had this kind of, it's hard to describe because you had the, you had the bass clarinet and the cello mm-hmm. and the piano kind of surrounding each other, kind of, it almost reminded me of, don't take this the wrong way, but it's kind of like sinewy or muscly or something like that, where everything is very, you know, like, it, it's just like i said they they wrap around each other and it's it's no that makes sense so, yeah there's something but there's something about it that's really i mean after we come from the first movement which you know is like piccolo and mm-hmm. high piano and high percussion very hockety you know and then to get this you know really i'm just going to use the word again sinewy melody mm-hmm. in in the third movement is very very satisfying i thought mm-hmm. uh, good <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> what are uh, what compliment. are the what are the particular stories for these three movements? Um, Court of the Dragon is uh, the, which is the last movement is um, about from what I can remember. I wrote these a very long time ago um, about a, a a guy who slowly goes uh, crazy because he keeps seeing this person um, who's kind of really pasty and the way that they describe the skin of this particular character is really disgusting. (laughs) Like uh, if you, if you poked it, it would just like explode with, you know, maggots or something Um, like really delicate pasty skin. But he keeps seeing this figure, um, you know, out of his window or, and it keeps following him. Um, And I believe that's the correct story. (laughs) And anyway, it ends up with him, I think dying, but he doesn't, outrightly die he's transported into Carcosa um which is kind of the uh, fictional location at the at the core of the King in Yellow play which is the fictional book that this book is based on it's kind of right. complicated um, very meta yeah yes yeah <laughs> well put um yeah so that's Court of the Dragon so it has got kind of a, a heavy uh underlying oppression to it as well um the mask which is the first one i think no the yellow sign is the first one i can't remember what that story is <laughs> um i'd have to read them again because this, this is back in i think it's 2012 mm-hmm. um yeah um and since then i've also focused on turning a couple of these stories into short opera um scenes so mm-hmm. I've since my brain is in in that world uh, more recently, right? Um, yeah, and then again, the mask I think is about uh, a sculptor who discovers this magical liquid that if you put any living object into it, is instantly turned into flawless marble. And he goes a little bit crazy because he's been reading The King in Yellow as well. Um, and then his wife, there's a kind of a love triangle involved with this particular story. Um, his wife starts to go crazy because she's actually in love with this other guy and she jumps into a pool of this liquid, turns into marble. Then the husband shoots himself in the head and the guy is the Alec, who's the, uh, the other member of this triangle gets a little bit sick, but then comes back and, you know, Genevieve's dead, Boris is dead. Um, but the end of the story is beautiful because um 
he starts to see living objects around this uh, this old older house, which was their house. Um, and the lily is turned back into a real lily. The rabbit sculpture has suddenly disappeared. What happened to it? Um, and all of a sudden, the revelation he gets, oh, my gosh, Genevieve's going to wake up. She's not going to be marble for much longer because this stuff wears off. <laughs> so mm-hmm. the end of the story is kind of like a – and the music is uh, kind of a blossoming, like an awakening, almost mm-hmm. like a happy ending after all yeah. the terrible stuff that happens. Yes. It sounds like I, I read terrible things. <laughs> it really does. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I read really good things as well. <laughs> <laughs> So but I mean, yeah, but, uh, you know, if, uh, if there, if there's never any, um, if there's never any conflict in right. these, in these stories, it's kind of hard to make convincing music about it. Yes. More drama, the better. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> who, who are we going to hear on this, uh, on this performance that we're going to listen to? So Jessica Banks, uh, is on the flute slash piccolo. We've got Keith Northover is on clarinet and bass clarinet. Ethan Geller is on percussion. Claire um, Logendike and uh, Grigor Kachatrian is on piano. Bijan Sapani is the violinist and J.Y. Choi is the cellist.
Can you give us kind of a, well, let's see, we're recording this before the, mm -hmm. the premiere of your new piece for the Chose Awards is, is happening, but we're going, it comes out after the premiere. So a preview slash wrap up yep. of, I don't know, <laughs> <laughs> what's, what's the piece about? <laughs> okay. Um, the title is Sericulture and I'm not sure how many people know what this technical term means. Um, and the reason why I chose it, I'm super fussy with my, my titles, like I mentioned. And as you know, the proposal that I submitted for this was based on the um, time zone, the single time right. zone that occupies China across all five yeah, regions. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's pretty weird. <laughs> it's amazing. It's because uh, I mean, time zones are a huge part of my life, you know, talking, you know, whether it's to my family um, having mm -hmm. to keep in mind this, you know, they're in the future at the moment, technically not the future, but we'd like to say that, um, you know, yeah, I am, I am too. I'm speaking yeah, to you from the future. You are speaking to me from the future. <laughs> See, for me, Mark's birthday was yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> for me, his birthday's tomorrow. <laughs> um, <laughs> but so I, I love this idea of time zones and that's immediately, um, that's what I wanted to fixate on for, for China. Um, and then, you know, I, I sat down, I started to write this piece and I'm like, how, how do I put this into music? You know, normally I've got some kind of a narrative. There's some kind of a, you know, story or something that I can latch onto. And so I was, have, I was struggling with this. All I had was time, five regions unifying under that one time zone. Um, mm -hmm. and so I decided to go with, um, another cultural aspect that unified all of these regions as well, which is sericulture, um, which is the um, breeding and farming of silkworms and which mm. then produces, you know, the beautiful silk fabric and um, yep. culture that is in China. Um, and so for me, for which, for which Suzhou is particularly known. Are you serious? <laughs> I'm serious. Brilliant. Suzhou, Suzhou is a huge silk. Um, like that's kind of their claim to fame. It's like, in Suzhou, you've got the classical Chinese gardens that are, you know, recognized by the World Heritage uh, Foundation. We have like, I think four of them are recognized in the city, but also this uh, Suzhou is known for oh, silk. Wow. I'm so nice job. Pointed, I can't come. <laughs> I'm so sad. Um, but great. Good on me for thinking yeah. of that. Um, yeah. So I guess, again, it's connected to insects. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's your thing. <laughs> wow. Uh, but yeah, anyway, so um, it, yeah, and it, thinking, of, thinking of silkworms and also the construction of fabric, um, there is still the, the notion of five in the piece representing the five regions. Um, you know, they, they are the sections within the music, the larger sections. Um, but also this idea of silk and weaving – um, and also some kind of a cultural folk, like it's the music does not sound Chinese. I'm just going to say that outright because I didn't yeah. want to go down that vein. That's not what I do. Right. Um, 
but it links to like a notion of folk, uh, mm-hmm. folk music. It's an ambiguous folk music to be certain, <laughs> um, right, but yeah. you can still hear it in there, especially with the violin and cello. Um, mm. But yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that's how the piece, that's what the piece is about. Well, we, you know, we can't wait to, we can't wait to hear it. And Me too. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> So uh, we'll we'll end with the last question that I always ask mm-hmm. um, to to everyone I interview is is that um, how did you come to music as something that you wanted to pursue as as your life? I was kind of born into it. Um, not kind of. I was definitely born into it. My parents yeah. are both music teachers. Um, my mom mm-hmm. was a concert pianist, and my dad a conductor and a, an arranger. Um. So I grew up with it, grew up with music parties, you know, every weekend. Um, yeah, we started, all my siblings and I, piano lessons when we were five, you know, four or five years old. Um, and for me, I got into composing because I was terrified of performing. Um, the first time I, I played piano on stage in front of people, my mom had to come and get me off the stage because I just froze after I finished. Aww. I played beautifully, but then Aww. I just froze. Um, whereas my sister, on the other hand, natural born performer, like no nerves, mm-hmm. nothing. So, um, anyway, when I was 14, I realized I just started writing music one day. It was because of a, <laughs> I had a crush on a boy and I just needed this outlet to express it. Cause you know, I was a very shy introvert, um, at that point when I was in high school and you know, I just, I did a system for labeling the alphabet and had his name encoded in it and then started Aww. writing this piece. <laughs> it ended up being this 10 minute piece of music that I put into a competition. Um, my mom was adamant that the ending didn't sound finished. And I was like, no, okay. mom, this is my piece. It's got to finish like this. And I won the competition. And on top of that, the adjudicator said, I loved your ending. <laughs> <laughs> big slap in the face uh, take mom. that mom yeah but for me it was affirmation i'm like i've got this i can i can do this and after that point it was never a question it was i'm, I'm a composer uh-huh. this this is what i want to do and it's been that way since i was 14 wow yeah <laughs> that's i would i would say of all the people i've talked to so far that is the that's the most like straight up start start so young and then and progress really? into its story i've heard yeah wow. yeah a lot of there i the com, composers come from all different types of situations it seems like yeah and uh so yeah that's that's really interesting that at 14 you kind of knew mm-hmm. um i would say i would say 14 was the was really the time when i first started music Wow. Yeah, I was I was pretty late. Um yeah, because that was the point where I really started to get serious about guitar because, you know, I had crushes on girls and I wanted to write Totally, songs right? It, it's so. it's that time. <laughs> That's how it goes. <laughs> I can relate to that. <laughs> awesome. <it's>, yeah, fantastic. <laughs> so, uh Right now, you are you're in Indiana. Right now, correct? yes, Bloomington. You're in Bloomington, and you are expecting. I am. Yes, I'm not really yeah. showing. I'm I'm over halfway yeah. through, and it's tiny. 
He's he's tiny. <laughs> oh, you already know it's it's going to be a boy. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Excellent. And uh, then, well, you would. I remember you had planned to go back to Australia after that. That was the plan. That right? was the plan. Not um, so much anymore. No, that's changed a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I, I met my husband and, and we, we had to fight a lot, not with each other, but just cause we both knew that, you know, he wanted to leave Bloomington. I wanted to leave Bloomington when we'd first met. Um, but I mean, including the way that we met, we shouldn't have really ever crossed paths, but we did. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's a really funny story. Um, but yeah, he changed a lot cause he's one of those people that, you know, unshakable support and I've never mm-hmm. really met anyone that had that utter uh, belief in what I did and um, I'm the same with him with what, what he loves doing as well. So built on that, um, I think our relationship works and we can go wherever we want as well. I mean, one day we'll probably move to Australia for a while. But at the mm-hmm. moment, um, it's just it's working really well. He loves his job. I love my job. I get to compose for most most of the time I teach a couple of days a week. But the rest mm-hmm. of the time I'm writing music. So for me that's uh dream come true. Living the dream. Living the dream. <laughs> um yeah, so there's no need to move. Um and we right. we've bought a lovely house. The baby's on the way. Um yeah. I I cannot complain. Life is good. Yeah. <laughs> well, that, that's that's so great to hear. Um, where can people find you on the on the interwebs? On the interwebs, um, my website and all of my other social media links like SoundCloud and YouTube, um, Facebook, whatever, um, all have links back to well, actually to everything. So <laughs> you go to my everything is interlinked. Ev- it is everything is incredibly interlinked. Okay, and your website is. Um, my first name, my last name, au. Awesome. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for having me. It's been really fun. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for listening. As always, if you want to find out more about adjective new music or lexical tones, please go to our website, www.adjectivenewmusic.com.